Let's talk about your memories of Kenneth Anger. Yeah. How close was he to Anita Palenberg? Well, uh, pretty close. Close enough that she did give him some funding. Okay. And I'm sure they shared some substances together. <laughs> um, they knew each other. Yeah, they knew each other well. Let's talk about Invocation of My Demon Brother, because that's yeah. the film that brings together a member of the Manson family and Bobby Beausoleil. Oh, sure. And the Rolling Stones. And Stone. I believe Susan Atkins also. I think there were some quick cuts of Susan Atkins also. Really? Okay. Yes. I've seen that a million times, and I ha- I'll have to go back and look for her in that. There is a lady who seems to have a shadow of a mustache, <laughs> I believe, and I believe that one is Sadie. What do you think Kenneth Anger's legacy is? I think it will undoubtedly be that he created an entirely new art form, an entirely Mm -hmm. new kind of genre of film, which is undeniable. Rock is lit! This bonus offering from Rock is Lit is an edited excerpt from my interview with Zena Schreck about her godfather, the avant-garde filmmaker Kenneth Anger, for episode 6 of the podcast, which features Zachary Lazar's rock novel Sway, a story that brings together the early Rolling Stones, members of the Manson family, and Kenneth Anger's film Invocation of My Demon Brother in a fictional setting. Zena Schreck, formerly LaVey, is an interdisciplinary visual and musical artist based in Berlin, Germany. Raised within the Church of Satan, she came to international prominence early in life as the organization's high priestess and first public spokesperson defending the church in the 1980s during the infamous media-fueled U.S. satanic panic. She resigned her position in 1990, severed ties with her father Anton LaVey, and renounced Satanism and Western occultism to pursue her own religious path which led to her becoming a practitioner and lineage holder of Tibetan Tantric Buddhism. Enjoy this bonus episode of Rock is Lit, then listen to the whole episode 6 on Zachary Lazar's novel Sway. Also check out my in-depth interview with Scott Michaels on the Manson family. Links in the show notes. Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I would really appreciate it if you'd leave us a comment and 5-star rating on your podcast platform of choice and on YouTube. Thanks for listening, everyone. Zena, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Christy. Thank you for inviting me. Let's talk about your memories of Kenneth Anger. Yeah. Do you remember when you were first aware of him in your life? Uh, well, actually, he was a presence in my life going back so far that I don't have a memory of when he first appeared on the scene in my life. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you a funny anecdote about how he became my godfather, <laughs> because that, that oh, happened later. <laughs> Um, that happened around the time, let's see, the year would have been whenever the film The Godfather was released. 1972. Good time, yeah, because that was a good year, because that was when a lot was happening in Kenneth Anger's life. And he knew Francis Ford Coppola. I don't know if you know that. Um, And he was, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, in the San Francisco scene, filmmaker scene, he was kind of drifting out of the Zoetrope studios and drifting out and, mm-hmm. and uh, had connections with 
another producer called Tom Luddy, and there were a number of directors and producers that Ken knew in the San Francisco Bay Area. When The Godfather came out, because of Ken having known people who worked on The Godfather, and I guess he sort of got it in his head that well, not not that Ken is at all like Marlon Brando or or at all like that character, but he sort of got it in his head that he he would really like to be a godfather. And and I remember <laughs> when he said it to my father, and before I finish this anecdote, I want to give you a visual to have in mind when I'm discussing Ken. Okay. Because probably for me comparable way of visualizing him at that age, at that time, and in in the environment of my family, with my father and mother and the kinds of people that were around then. If you can imagine Blue Velvet, the film Blue Velvet, and oh, yes. you know the Dean Stockwell yes. character. In, in, okay. Yes. That is how I remember Kenneth Anger. And in relation <laughs> to the Frank character, the Dennis Hopper character, which doesn't look anything like my father, but he behaves in a same, yeah. similar kind of way that my father behaved in those Ooh. days. Um, very thuggish and kind of, you know, well, he had his issues. But um, the Dean Stockwell character, after I saw Blue Velvet, and I saw it with a work colleague, uh, I was working at UCSF Medical Center in San Francisco, and we, we after mm-hmm. work one day, we decided, oh, we'll just go see this new film Blue Velvet. This is a, a digression from what I'm telling you about how I became <laughs> his goddaughter. But anyway, we, we went to see Blue Velvet, and after we saw it, we came out of the theater, at the, the cinema. I said, what would you think? And I was sort of grinning, and she said, my God. That was horrific. And I was like, really? And I said, I thought it was hilarious. It was just, I said, it was just like the way I grew up. These, these, the people, oh I said, God. these people are just like pe- the characters from my life. <laughs> so, and I was specifically wow. thinking Kenneth Anger because that Dean Stockwell character, his behavior just nailed my memories of how Kenneth Anger's behavior was around a household. Okay. So if you have a kind of visual of that performance, that would be a very accurate way of understanding my memories of, of Kenneth. All you have to do is superimpose Kenneth's face over. Although it, the way Dean Stockwell's expressions and his mannerisms, I'm not entirely sure that he didn't pattern that character after Kenneth. Even because David Lynch is inspired by Thanker's films. Yeah, he has mentioned that. Uh, which is nice because not everybody who's been inspired by Kenneth Anker's films do acknowledge that. Um, so he's yeah. one of them who has. So now, to go back in time, with you having that visual image of the Dean Stockwell <laughs> character from Blue Velvet, um, you know, Kenneth was kind of dancing around the kitchen saying, stomping his foot, kind of in a sassy way, saying, I want to be a godfather. I want to be a godfather. And my father said, well, then a godfather you shall be. And he, and I said, and he was, and my father said something like, and he was uh, um, parroting, you, you may know the scene in Kenneth's film, Invocation of My Demon Brother, where there's the scene where it says, Zap, mm-hmm. you're pregnant, that's witchcraft. You know that part? Okay. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. my father said, Zap, you're a godfather. 
And that's like, that's, (laughs) so it is done. (laughs) And it was a totally spontaneous thing. And then he's like, yeah, you know, he's like shaking his little pitchfork and yeah, yeah, I'm a godfather. That's amazing. But of course, it's an absurd thing because a godfather and a church of Satan, what sense does that make? And in in what context and, (laughs) and what God and it's rather, you know, it's rather illogical. <laughs> but that's how it happened. And for, for all right, you know, forevermore, you know, yeah, he was my godfather. And how did he think of that role once he got it? You know what? I actually think he took it more seriously than my father did. <laughs> my father just, mm, my okay. father was just kind of a throwaway, kind of off the cuff thing. But I think he actually took it more seriously because he did kind of take me under his wing. And he did, uh, you know, he shared a lot of things with me that were probably inappropriate for the various ages that he did. You know, whether I was 10, 11, 15, or whatever, until adulthood. But he was quite open with me and shared a lot. But you got to remember, this was the 70s. And things were weird. In the yes. 70s. And and being a young girl in the 70s was, it's, you know, it's another world then in those days. Mm-hmm. Although I have to say, I really enjoyed Ken. I really did like his company. I really did like watching how he worked. I really did like being around him. And uh, I was never frightened of him. And he never put me in any compromising situations. I would like to add to that, though. I befriended the author Spencer Kenza. He wrote the biography on Cameron Parsons. So Cameron Parsons was the wife of Jack Parsons. He he was a rocket scientist, actually, for Jet Jet Propulsion Lab. However, he was an occultist, and he was a follower of Aleister Crowley. And he he and L. Ron Hubbard uh, created a working together to manifest the Scarlet Woman, and the Scarlet Woman manifested in the form of Cameron Parsons, and she became then a follower follower of Alistair Foley also. And as a result of that, Kenneth Anger and Cameron Parsons befriended each other through their mutual interest in Telema and, uh, you know, being a follower of Alistair Crowley. Anyhow, getting back to Spencer Kanza and how this connects is because I was working on a project with Spencer and in the process of discussing uh, Cameron Parsons and her daughter, Crystal, because Kenneth Anger had lived with Cameron in San Francisco um, for a while and they had a very close, really close, closely bonded relationship. However, Cameron's daughter uh, related to Spencer, uh, that sh- she used to be literally terrified of Kenneth. She was absolutely mm. terrified of his mood swings, of his erratic behavior, and not knowing what to expect from him. And she said that he just wow. utter- utterly terrified her. And that's direct, uh, direct relating what Spencer said to me. But I had a very different experience. And I think possibly. The reason contributing factor to that was, in a way, and this is going to sound weird, I know, but in a way, when Kenneth would visit our house, you see, my parents were 
although my parents had a really crazy lifestyle, compared to other people that Kenneth was hanging around, uh, compared to the whole drug scene in San Francisco and the types of people that Kenneth knew, both in San Francisco and in London and in Los Angeles, my parents were very straight-laced by comparison. By comparison. Now, again, this is a spectrum. So, so that's gotcha. Um, so, it's a relative thing. Uh, but by comparison, Kenneth had a personality that was really, to say it was highs and lows, it would be an understatement. I mean, I'm sure he had bipolar you know, issues and ADHD and all of these myriad neurological. Uh, components that contributed to his personality and behavior. But then there's also character and just other things that go into someone's personality. He was definitely a person of extremes. And he would go on these very high highs. Some of those were organic highs of just what his neurology was dictating. And some of those were, uh, you know, with the help of stimulants. So, yes. He would go on these very high highs and he would, you know, do things that would probably create a lot of damage with people that he had, you know, repeated fallings out with. And then when he would kind of crash and he needed somewhere to be quiet and to be kind of left alone with understanding people, he'd come to our house and he'd just sometimes either even show up without warning and just crash in, in one of the spare rooms. And see, I remember him as being a pretty decent house guest in those days, in those days. However, over time, that apparently changed by the 90s. Um, and and that, that's where I got some feedback from my half-sister Carla in her recollections, which are not so joyful as mine. <laughs> oh, so... This is Zena Shreff, and you are listening to Rock is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. To go back in time to the early 70s, when I'm talking about when I spent time with him, for example, when he was uh, working on the American edition of Hollywood Babylon, he had, uh, and and then there again, he would come and stay with us for some weeks at a time. He would bring this antique suitcase. He had this really oversized antique suitcase that he he kept like his traveling office. And he had all of the mm. clippings, all of the photos. And I'm talking about original photos that he used for Hollywood Babylon. He had um, printouts of the typesetting for the captions of the photos. And he was cutting and pasting and doing this all by hand, spreading it out all wow. over the, the kitchen table in the daytime when my parents were sleeping or if my mother was out running errands or doing other things and they weren't using the kitchen. So he used the kitchen, spread this all out. You know, I was playing with friends and stuff. I would go out and, and do my kids' stuff. But when I'd come back and I'd see him still working, and I, of course, I'd sit and just kind of watch. It was interesting to me. And so he, he would be methodically working on that. And he, he would be very quiet, actually, when he was working on, on things like that that were more introspective. And, uh, you know, then when dinner time would come around, he'd pack up all his stuff off the kitchen table, put it in his little suitcase, or it was a rather large suitcase, and put it in, in the room where he was staying. And uh, he was very tidy in that way. Uh-huh. And about the way he would stay in the guest room. I mean, he used to say, but I didn't believe it, but he used to say that he really never slept, that he was like a shark. He used to say, oh, oh I don't need any blankets or pillows. I, I don't sleep. I just, just let me have a couch and that'll be fine because I'll just sit here and close my eyes a few minutes. And he said, I, I'm like a shark. I don't need sleep. And I didn't necessarily believe him but but i did i do remember going into what was then the red room where he was staying and it was quite remarkable that the that the couch which we we did give him sheets and a pillow for him to lay down on but it was like there was never a mark on it there was never the indentation that the head that the head rested on the pillow unless he was just so i mean it's possible that he was just such a control freak that he you know he would lay down, but then immediately when he would get up, he'd already puff up the pillow and make it look like nobody had laid down on it. That is possible because, you know, he did create his own persona of this kind of magical yeah. entity. For example, he used to tell people that he was a Scorpio. He wanted to be a Scorpio, but he's not a Scorpio. Mm. He was born in February. So, uh, but he wanted to be a Scorpio and he used to tell people he was a Scorpio. That's part of how he was shaping his magical persona. And another thing is, I don't know if you have ever seen his handwriting, his script, his... No, well, he has very, distri- very distinctive handwriting. And um, some people have commented on or asked me about it. And I remember, not just him, he used to like people to think that he was naturally left-handed. And I remember my mother saying, Oh, he's not left-handed. He just forced himself to use his left hand. <laughs> and 
then I talked to him about it later in life when I was older and living in Los Angeles and would visit him at Samson DeBreer's house where he lived in a flat. So Samson DeBreer was one of the actors in Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. And in fact, in okay. fact, Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome was filmed in his property, in his house. So uh, later in life, Kenneth moved into a flat in that property in Hollywood, in Los Angeles. And then I remember I used to go there frequently to, I would help Kenneth out if he needed uh, to be driven somewhere, if he because he didn't drive. I don't know if he would have been capable of driving. He he had issue he had issues with impulse control. <laughs> and so I don't know okay. I don't know if his not driving was by choice or if he really wasn't able to learn how to drive or what it was, but he did not drive. So he would walk everywhere in Hollywood that he needed to do or take the bus or take cabs or if he could get a lift. So if he needed a ride, I could give him a lift. And sometimes he'd need me to type uh, letters for him in those days. There was no email, of course. And um, he was trying to get funding. This, I'm jumping back and forth in time through the 70s to the 80s. But um, in the 80s, when I, when I was living in Los Angeles at the same time he was living in Hollywood, um, he was trying to get funding to do a a film version, an updated version of Death Takes a Holiday. And so he was trying to get funding oh. for that. So he, he would uh, he asked me to write, type letters for him. He would dictate them to me, and I would just type as he was dictating and get the rough draft and then re, redo the letter in proper format. After I got the gist of what he was wanting me to say to producers or whatever, of getting, you know, raising the funds. However, anyhow, what I'm saying is I spent a lot of time in that flat and um, and we got talking just about little incidental things along the way. And I did ask him about his handwriting once because his signature, he was signing something and he signed it with his left hand. And I asked him, are you really left-handed? And he said, I'm ambidextrous. And he said, I'm ambidextrous <laughs> in every way. And he hated oh. he hated labels. He hated being shoved into any group of people, any any category, whether it was uh it didn't matter. He just he he always considered himself uh a lone wolf and his own his own thing, his own entity. And whenever somebody would try to pitch except for Crowley, that was his exception. He was a follower of Crowley, and there's where we differed because I was not. And I wasn't yeah. really interested in hearing anything about that. I don't, I don't care. It's a very misogynistic religion. Exactly. It, very much so. And I agree yeah. I agree completely. And I never had any interest in it. And he never pushed it on me, thankfully. But he also knew that I wasn't interested and that the things that he had about Crowley would not impress me and wasn't, wasn't anything that I found interesting. But that was the one thing that, for some reason, he did give total dedication to. And that was the exception. But in terms of other things, he didn't want to be pigeonholed. He didn't want to be labeled. Even in terms of his homosexuality, he said, I don't need those labels. I'm whatever. You know, I'm, I mean, of course he was very, but what kind of a homosexual was he? He was a very old fashioned kind of homosexual, actually. He was not a political, Mm. he was not, in fact, he hated the politicizing of, of anything. And I agreed with he was a good influence on me in that way. I'm in total agreement 
with the politicizing of anything, whether it's spirituality, sexuality. Do I agree with that one hundred percent? And so he did not. He did not buy into all that because he had. I do believe he had a very romantic relationship with Cameron Parsons, who was a woman. Mm-hmm. But she too was very androgynous, and she too was very ambiguous and not definable in her own way. So I think they had a kind of understanding with each other that was not your typical male-female relationship, but it worked for them. I do believe it was romantic, but you don't have to have a sexual relationship to have a romantic relationship. And and anyway, who knows whether they did have sex or not, and who cares? Because it was love, and that's more important. Love is more important than what someone does with their genitals. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. I was talking to Zachary Lazar, who wrote the novel Sway, and I was talking to journalist Tony Sokol, and we were all three saying how much we admire and really love Kenneth Anger's films. I know Cocteau praised him for fireworks. Yes. Yeah. Was he feeling that coming from the public or the critics during I that time? I don't think as much as he would have liked and probably even objectively not yet. Uh, maybe partly because of people that he did have direct interactions with, which he did burn a lot of bridges just based on his yeah, own, gather. based on his own, as I said, impulse control and his own personality and his mercurial behavior. Um, I think in the early, well, not early stages, let's say between the sixties and seventies where he was mature enough. He wasn't just a up and coming filmmaker. He had established himself, but there were only a handful of, I think, critics and and other filmmakers who would acknowledge uh, that they were inspired or influenced by him or that gave him credit for actually creating a new art form. Um, I think that came later. I think that actually developed much later, like maybe into the 90s. But in the 70s, I mean, he was definitely revered in subcultures in yeah he had a a niche following in subcultures and in alternative uh 
media and alternative, you know, what what would have been the precursors to fanzines and things like that. That was pretty well established. But in terms of uh, any kind of mainstream recognition, I don't think so. No. And and of yeah. course, we can't forget, too, that he was a heavy influencer of MTV and the, and the oh, MTV yes. video format. Yes. Because his use of pop music in conjunction with the, the very quick cuts of different mm-hmm. kinds of um, vintage clips, along with original clips and very fast-paced quick cuts like that. Right. That was definitely a strong influence on the early days of MTV and then ultimately of music videos as we even know them today, continuing on to today. Agreed. Agreed. And he didn't use dialogue in his films. No, no, they were very evocative because there was no dialogue. Mm -hmm. And and I myself am am very influenced in that way too, that I I tend to, my creations, I, I tend to favor not using so much dialogue, not using so even my own vocals in my own musical compositions. I, ch- I tend to use it minimally, or maybe only as a sound rather than uh, a narrative or telling a story or singing a song in a conventional way. Um, I use my vocals in a more kind of uh, maybe dreamlike way, I try. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely an influence that he had on me there is to establish and you know create dreamlike effects uh, right which right. is easy for me because i'm so influenced by my dreams as well yes. so that was something that i was very attentive to in this process of working inauguration of the pleasure dome is just a visually stunning movie it is it's, it's beautiful it's and yes. and and I mean, honestly, so many of them are just stunning. But I, I don't know how to choose which would be the favorite. Really. But yes, inauguration of the Pleasure Dome is absolutely beautiful. And incredible people in, in that film, too. Let's talk about Invocation of My Demon Brother, because that's yeah. the film that brings together a member of the Manson family and Bobby Beausoleil. Oh, sure. And the Rolling Stones. And I believe Susan Atkins also. I think there were some quick cuts of Susan Atkins also. Really? Okay. Yes. I've seen that a million times, and I ha- I'll have to go back and look for her in that. There is a lady who seems to have a shadow of a mustache, <laughs> I believe, and I believe that one is Sadie. All right. Well, you, Sadie did have Sadie. that little mustache. Yes. <laughs> well, shoot. I can't believe I missed that. I'll have to go look again. But it's a quick... Very quick flash. All right, and she and she's looking like she's tripping out of her mind. Well, that would be Sadie <laughs> with glazed eyes. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's the film that brings the Manson family with Bobby Beausoleil and the Rolling Stones because Mick did the soundtrack and briefly appeared in it along yes. with Keith and then Anita Palenberg and Marianne Faithful. Right. They're in the audience at the the Hyde Park show. That's what I was going to say. This is the weird thing. It's because there were clips taken from disparate yeah. disparate places. It wasn't all shot obviously in one continuous place mm-hmm. in one in one way in one house. It was clips from all different times and places. Your dad even makes an appearance. Yes. That was only like a day shoot or maybe not more than 2 days at the most. And that was filmed at what was known as the Russian Embassy House, where Kenneth was living at the time. 
And I'm not sure if Bobby Beausoleil was actually living there. He might have been living in a room or a flat elsewhere in the hate or somewhere else. I don't remember. But that was the time that Kenneth was wanting Bobby to be his Cupid. Did you ever meet him? I did not meet. Well, you mean Bobby Beausoleil? Yes. I did not meet him. However, my sister did. And talking to her earlier today, I actually mentioned to her that I was going to be on your podcast. And I asked her, do you have any recollections of, of Bobby? And she said, oh, sure. He stopped by the house once in a van that he was helping Kenneth move. Kenneth was moving out, probably out of the Russian embassy, actually. And I guess they were on their way to go to Los Angeles and pulled up in front of our house, the family house, on California Street in the Richmond District so that Kenneth could go in and get some, pick up some of his stuff that he had left at our house and, I guess, say goodbye to my father or whatever. And so while Kenneth was inside getting his stuff and, and saying goodbye, uh, my sister was outside talking to Bobby Beausoleil, and she said, oh, yeah, he gave me some little trinkets. Wow. asking me about uh, the film shoot of my father's part. We were talking about the little snippets of Hyde Park, where Kenneth had filmed uh, Mick Jagger mm-hmm. and who else was it? Marianne Faithful from Hyde Yeah, Park? Anita sure. Pallenberg and Marianne Faithful. Oh, no, Anita Pallenberg. They're in the audience. Right, right. And then those he spliced into. He spliced into the film. And I think, if I'm remembering correctly, he had originally intended those clips to go into Lucifer Rising, but changed his mind, put them into Invocation of My Demon Brother. And then there was a short period of time when Bobby Beausoleil dropped out as the Cupid, as I should say, as uh, Kenneth's personal Cupid. But I'm saying when he dropped out as Lucifer, Kenneth was, I think, for a short while contemplating having Jagger be the, mm-hmm. be Lucifer instead. But that that was short-lived, and it was during that little interim period where he was able to get Mick Jagger to do that um, Moog yeah. synthesizer impro- improvisation, which is interesting in and of itself, only because it was it's a documentation of Mick Jagger's first experience trying to use a Moog <laughs> synthesizer. So, so on that merit, it's kind of interesting. And some people, you know, actually like that as the soundtrack, and some people prefer the later version. But one thing that is interesting about all of Kenneth's films, of the as far as I'm, as far as I know, of the later ones like uh, Invocation of My Demon Brother and Lucifer um, Rising, is that there were different versions. The there were different versions, and he was always splicing and remixing and re editing and you know interjecting new little clips and scenes and sometimes you could say it was sort of cleverly done to if somebody was giving him backing for example some patron of the yeah. arts or something and say oh i'll put you in my film i'll put you in my film 
And then as it turns out, he, he was always saying that to everybody else, but he said it to me too. I'll put you, <laughs> I want you to be my fairy, fairy princess in the film I'm making. And I was but I'm going to put everybody he knows into the film, which is great because he usually did incorporate everybody right. into his films. But if somebody gave him backing, you know, he'll say, oh, well, you know, I'll thank you for that by putting you in my film. And maybe actually if the film that he had intended didn't come to fruition, then he would at least like take a snippet of that person and in, and stick it in one of the yeah. previous films and say there and show it to share it to him and say there there you are you know and the, so then that would be a different version and there are so many actually there are so many different versions yeah of yeah. his films that it's sort of a crapshoot is which one you'll see and it's kind of interesting that way because it was an ongoing process and they were always evolving. How close was he to? Anita Palenberg. Well, uh, pretty close, close enough that she did give him some funding. Okay, um, she's one of those patrons of the arts that I was mm-hmm. talking about. Now, whether the funding came directly from her or whether she facilitated it through other means, I don't know. But she did give him some funding, and she—I'm sure they shared some substances. <laughs> um, <laughs> they knew each other. Yeah, they knew each other well. And the interesting thing is when they went to film in Egypt, you know, I'm sure you've heard the stories that they almost got thrown out of Egypt because of her habits. Yeah. So she jeopardized the production. And I think Marianne Faithful did also, both of them, um, jeopardized the production with their habits. And that's not to say that Kenneth didn't have his substance abuse enjoyments, but I think he was trying to get a job done while he was there. And didn't need the the um, and I say that in relative terms. I mean, he's. I'm not saying he's without his own irresponsibility. He certainly was. But when he'd get focused on wanting to get something done, he could be very dictatorial. <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah, the, right. they knew each other well. But I will say, um, in terms of close friendships with women and females in his life, definitely Cameron was the one. But he knew Anita Pallenberg very well, you know. And of course, with their the thing in common they had was their interest in magic and occultism, black, black magic. Okay. So that was obviously the common denominator there. Yeah. And she was very dark. She was very dark. And not only was she very dark, but I'll say she was a driving force behind the style of the Rolling Stones and you know, not just their style, but she introduced she and both she and Marianne Faithful introduced the Stones to a lot of things that I don't think would have occurred to them to to investigate or look into. And perhaps you could even say that Hallenberg was responsible for their going down the rabbit hole of black magic and Satanism and, and the things that ultimately led to the you know, the dark phase of Altamont and all that. What do you think Kenneth Anger's legacy is? I think it will undoubtedly be that he created an entirely new art form, an entirely Mm -hmm. new kind of genre of film, which is undeniable. And and that's a legacy that I think we can be sure of. Yeah. An entirely new genre, an entirely new art form, which has inspired countless, countless other other creators who are far more successful and far more wealthy and far more 
acknowledged and recognized than he is so far. Well, I love his work. Yeah. And, I and I'm, I'm so glad that I was exposed to it. And I'm so glad that I've had the chance to talk to you. It has been a pleasure. Well, thank thank you. you so much for coming on the show and talking about all kinds of stuff with me. Well, thank you very much as well. It was enjoyable for me to go sort of down this memory lane because, you know, I don't often think of the past, but this is yeah. a, a kind of adjacent to my own past and yet integrated with my past that was fun and interesting for me to open up those old files and look into my old boxes and find these little artifacts that Ken has sent me and refresh my memory about these things. Yeah. So it was enjoyable for me also. Oh, I'm so glad. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of Rock is Lit, and thanks to Zena Shrek for talking with me and for letting me play clips from the three songs on her wonderful new album, Transcend. Those songs, in order of appearance in the episode, are Parting Clouds, Gone Beyond, and Ascent. Find the album on zenashrek.bandcamp.com. Listen to the whole episode six of Rock is Lit on Zachary Lazar's novel Sway, which includes Zena and journalist Tony Sokol, who shares his thoughts about the Rolling Stones' involvement in the occult in the late 60s, wherever you get your podcast. I'll put some links to that episode and Zena's Bandcamp page in the show notes for your convenience. Check out my in-depth interview with Scott Michaels on the Manson family, which is an addendum to Episode 6. Links to the Scott Michaels' Manson murders interview are also in the show notes. If you enjoyed this bonus episode, Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I hope you'll leave us a comment and five-star rating in your podcast platform of choice and on YouTube. Stay tuned for Season 3 of Rock is Lit, coming this fall. Until then, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is Lit! It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points.
FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 